for me, Homer. Give me the bat, Marge. Give me the bat. Give me the bat. Come on. Give me the bat. Give me the bat. bat, bat. <laughs> Dirty cat. You stay here till you're no longer insane. Hmm. Chili will be good tonight. Pain works on a sliding scale. So does pleasure in a candy jail. True love doesn't come around anymore. No, that didn't work. I'm gonna have to cut that part out. I can leave the other part in. Leave though. it in, bro. Leave it in, warts and all. <laughs> let the let the audience know how we do our magic. They want to know what these two artists, how they make what they make. Wouldn't you want to know what Van Gogh was up to as he was producing Starry Night, other than being like really hallucinatory and unstable? White man's burden, Robert, my yeah, man. There white, white man's burden. That That's it. There it is. Hey, everybody. I'm Brendan. This is Candy Joe. I'm here with Robert. And uh, what are we getting into this week, man? So basically, and I realized upon reflection that I have subjected you to so many books at this point that at first I felt a slight twinge of grumpiness when I realized I had to read an entire novel. And then I quickly hit myself with a croquet mallet and said, Jesus, Robert, you're a hypocrite. So wait, what were, go wait ahead. A minute. Actually, before you, speaking of, speaking of books that you subjected me to. So two things happened simultaneously. One is that I got an Amazon order. The other is that my brother came to visit with his new puppy. So in the mail the other day, I received a copy of Stolen by Elizabeth Gilpin. Nice. The Rhetoric of Reaction by Albert Hirschman, which is actually not one that you recommended that I get, and Camera Lucida by Roland Barthes. I left these books on the stairs in the presence of a young dog. And so this is my brand new copy of Roland Barthes, and this is my brand new copy of Albert Hirschman. How are you feeling about the destruction of Brendan's library? I'm mildly traumatized, and I'm indignant that my brother does not seem to feel my pain. It's, so it's, it, it's not as though I would demand that my brother pay for the books, because I did leave them out on the stairs at dog level. It's just that I, I wish that the sympathy seemed a little bit more genuine for my loss. Well, I guess you weren't listening to the really excellent parenting advice of the caretaker, Grady. You just needed to correct your brother and correct that puppy. They will be corrected. I am glad to hear that because you've always been here, Brendan. This is nothing I can't. This, this is nothing I can't handle, Robert. You just, if you could just let me out of this fucking room, we could get on with it. It's a candy jail and you can leave anytime you want. You just have to stop buying things on Amazon. I haven't been able to leave yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm no, I'm just totally fucked. Okay, okay. okay. So, let me, yeah, let me, yeah. Do you want me to do it? I'll do it. I'll do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So, what we did for this week was we read Stephen King's wonderful, excellent novel, The Shining. We then watched Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. And then we watched a. You could call it a documentary about, what would you say, Brendan, a, a contingency of Kubrick heads, of shining heads that have found all kinds of 
deep primordial secrets that explain everything from the Nazi Holocaust to the moon landing being faked to really the origins of the universe and why we're here and what it all means. So that was room 237 was the other film we watched. How'd I do? Yeah, that's fine. And we'll get into room 237 in the next episode, I think. Today, we're just going to focus on Stephen King's The Shining versus Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So I have watched Stanley Kubrick's The Shining probably at least 10 times at this point, maybe more. I did watch it a lot as a kid, which explains a lot, really, about why I'm troubled. But um, I had never read the novel, and I really have not read, didn't read anything Stephen King had ever written. And so this was my first exposure to reading a King novel. I, I enjoyed it, but but Brendan, you've had much more experience with and history with reading Stephen King's books. So do you want to just speak to like, before we get into the thick of The Shining, like how you came to King, what sustained your interest in his work? And then finally, if you want to then loop us back into The Shining. Well, I think The Shining was the first Stephen King book that I read. And I was in my early teens, maybe even younger, maybe like 12. And I remember sitting on the sofa at my grandmother's house for some kind of family function and reading that first sentence, Jack Torrance thought, officious little prick. And I, I don't know that either the word officious or the word prick confused me, but I, I know that I'd never seen them combined that way. And I never read a voice that sounded like his. You know, during my teen years, I read a lot of King, not everything, but almost everything I could get my hands on. But around the same time, I started to get into quote-unquote highbrow literature or real literature. So I was like reading Dostoevsky and Conrad and stuff like that. And I was aware that King was not really regarded as much more than like a pop genre novelist. And so I let that influence the way that I saw him, even though I was still devouring his books. And then I think a long time went by when I didn't really think of him that much at all. You know, maybe if I was back in, like, back visiting my parents' house, I would find one of my books and I'd read a short story or something, but that was about the size of it. And then in my 20s, when I was in the Peace Corps, I stayed a couple days in a house that had a shared library where you just, you know, leave a book, take a book kind of a deal. And I needed something to read just for the couple days that I knew I'd be there. And there was a novel called The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which I'd never heard of. It was one of King's newer books at the time. What year, just out of curiosity? 2003. Okay. Um, when was The Stand? The Stand, well, there are a couple different versions of it, um, but the, the main version of The Stand, I want to say, was 1990. Because I had a King head that I just talked with in preparation for this that said in his mind everything after the stand sucked so we don't need to go down that rabbit hole but i'm cur i'm interested now that you've referenced a book that's clearly you know completely out of the decades of the 90s uh as something that it sounds like you liked oh yeah no he went he went through a rough patch definitely where he was not he was publishing stuff that was not up to his normal standard and it he actually went through two rough patches and both of them really coincided with the first one was when his initial bout with addiction was reaching its peak, and the second one was after he was hit by a car and nearly killed and then was doped up on prescription drugs for a really long time, and he didn't become addicted to those, but they did, you know, he was writing under the influence again. 
But The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon is just fantastic. It's this lean little novel about a girl who's lost in the woods. And it, I read it and I was like, oh my God, this guy's a master. And since then, I have spent a lot more time with him. And I, but I, I, I probably wasn't in my, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I really, really was able to like situate him and understand what it is he does so well and what it is he does so unassumingly that people overlook it and mistake him for a far inferior stylist than he actually is. So I was guilty of sort of trying to make King into a guilty pleasure for a while just because I was so attuned at that time in my life to what you were supposed to think about literature. And I so I've I'd read The Shining many times. I did reread it for this episode, but I'd also seen the film many times because the other thing that you know those teen years like at the same time that i was getting into um everything from stephen king to charlotte bronte or whatever i was also getting into movies and my dad turned me on to bergman and tarkovsky and antonioni and he also turned me on to kubrick and so i would have watched the shining for the first time as a teenager and i remember I knew the movie was iconic, and I'd I'd seen some Kubrick that I loved. So I went into the movie with high expectations, and then there's the scene where Danny is imagining the Overlook Hotel, and the elevator doors open, and the blood pours out. And it's one of the most iconic scenes in the film. And when that came up for me watching the movie the first time, I rolled my eyes. I was like, this is idiotic. Like it's so- How old were you? How old were you when you watched it? Oh, probably 16. Okay, I saw that when I was seven or eight, which I mentioned in Speak No Evil, and I found that to be legitimately frightening. I I totally also would have found it to be legitimately frightening in seven or eight. And I did end up being scared by the movie in the end, but that elevator scene took me out of it. And even the color of the blood is not right, which I noticed, or the consistency or something. It doesn't look like blood. It looks like water that's been dyed with food coloring. And That's a CIA conspiracy, Brendan. <clears throat> it's a cover-up. Uh, they don't want you to know that we never landed on the moon. Um, well, that would... Science uh, also isn't real. It, it It's the stuff coming out of the elevator looks like the Kool-Aid that the people in room 237 drank before they <laughs> before they agreed to be interviewed by a respectable filmmaker. But I did end up at the time with an appreciation of the movie. And over the years, I would rewatch it from time to time. But at the same time that I was over the years realizing that my appreciation for King was rising and rising, I was realizing that my appreciation for Kubrick was falling. When I went back to rewatch The Shining this time around, say it was the fourth or fifth time maybe that I'd seen the movie, it was really hard for me to get into it. It was the first time in my life that I'd read the book and seen the film so close together. I don't know that I like the movie anymore, man. I mean, there's stuff in it that I respect. There's technical choices that he makes that I'm impressed by. Jack Nicholson's performance is iconic. The music is, I mean, I still have a visceral Pavlovian response to the music, and I suppose I always will. But I don't, I don't, I think it's kind of a silly movie. I, I kind of got the sense that maybe you were going through something similar. I, yeah, I think I came at it in, in a different way, but maybe arrived in a similar place. For me, um, and I don't say this as a brag. I would actually say this as a cautionary tale, like don't do what I did. But 
I basically haven't read a novel in eight years and have only been sucking down like history and economics texts, which explains also a lot about (laughs) different things. But so actually I I appreciated as I as I was grumpy at different moments that you insisted we read a novel. Um, So this is the first novel, more or less, that I've read in eight years. So A, I was enjoying giving my brain a break. And I say that with respect to King. It's not as if it's not a great novel and therefore you don't have to think. It's just a different kind of thinking than that sort of heavy-duty, dry academic writing that I was subjecting myself to. And so um, that was a welcome experience and i was also pleasantly surprised to really find myself getting into the book and respecting king as a writer and i think i told you like you know the first uh at least hundred pages i felt pretty convinced that he had yet to hit a false note with dialogue i was astounded by his ability to uh, convincingly render dialogue and further convincingly render his characters and uh, also the fact that there is indisputably many supernatural, if you want to call it that, elements to the book as there are in the movie. And that can be very hard to render convincingly because it's not grounded in real experience. And even with that, I was like, damn, this is, I think, as you put it, um, I, I'm, I'm comfortable using the word master. I was like, this is a masterful novel. And all those folks that get pretentious about, you know, like the Harold Blooms, God rest his soul, but, you know, who clearly would be uh, snooty about King and level the charge that he's a genre writer. You know, it's genre fiction and therefore it's not it's not worthy. Oh, my. It just seems so ludicrous to me. And, And I think it's grounded in a lot of different things that are pernicious in our culture, one of which being the jealousy of some who can't seem to manage to sell books of their own <laughs> that they write. So King is clearly a towering talent and I want to read more of his books. And so I was very impressed with the book pretty much from start to finish. It, there were a couple things that I think he not dropped balls, but I'm not sure I was completely uh taken uh, in the sense of like being in a trance the whole time, but most of the time I was. And yeah, well, I was going to say, let's get into that for a minute. Um, so obviously, we're going to spoil both of these if somehow someone hasn't is not familiar with the story of The Shining. Um, and we may also end up spoiling some aspects of Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. Um, but yeah, what were the moments for all of your praise and your enjoyment of the novel? What were the moments where you felt like there was a little bit of a hiccup or where King made a little bit of a misstep? Probably if I were forced to put my finger on it, it would probably time and again link back up with the character of Danny, who on the whole, I think he does a fabulous job with. But there's a couple instances where we forget that he's six years old and or he is six years old um, and we know he's precocious. We know he's unusually intelligent. That comes up in different ways and, and is part of how they explain this ability to shine. But some of the dialogue that came out of Danny's mouth at different points, I'm like, wait a second, this is not actually how a young kid talks, no matter how smart they are. There's just something here that's not ringing true for me, even while I'm witnessing this in the backdrop of a totally 
untrue situation, totally made up. But again, the power of King's imagination is so robust and his ability to put that imagination into language that's convincing was so wonderful that I do think that in spite of that, there were a couple instances where I'm like, this is just not exactly Danny as he's being rendered convincingly in other parts of the novel. And I couldn't tell you like the exact lines of dialogue, but there were probably a handful of moments where I'm just like, this just doesn't work. There were a couple actually like physical moments, like where Wendy hits Jack uh, and he's unconscious and they're dragging him into the pantry in the book. Danny's helping her in the film. Danny's nowhere to be found. That might actually have been one instance where I thought Kubrick made a good choice because when you look at what a six-year-old boy actually is like uh, in the body of the actor that played Danny, uh, it wouldn't really make sense for that little child to be helping the mother and dragging Jack's heavy, totally passed out body into the pantry. Again, these are like technical things that are fairly minor, but the more that I sort of saw these moments matched up against the book, uh, I thought, okay, some of that doesn't quite uh, pull itself off in the ways that it does in other portions of the book. Yeah, I hear you on both of those. I definitely, on this reread, I did notice a couple moments where I thought Danny ha- Danny's language had begun, gone beyond precociousness, like you said, and that maybe King was so he was so heavily empathizing with the character in those moments of writing that he was letting himself get a little bit carried away and letting maybe too much of an adult voice creep into Danny's speech patterns. The only oh, wait. Oh, yeah, can, I, can I throw in one more? Yes. One more issue that I had that I was like, okay, this is how King renders it. This is how Kubrick rendered it in the adaptation. So there's a very important scene when the cook, Halloran, uh, the main cook at the Overlook Hotel, and we find out very quickly that he can shine as Danny can, and he knows Danny can shine. And he winds up in the book taking, he says, hey, you know, help me with my luggage. And they wind up in his car while Wendy is watching this little child get into the car of this adult that he's just met to have a private conversation. I don't think that's realistic. I think uh, most parents would immediately, like Wendy is like, oh, I was nervous, but I kind of just sat there in my nervousness and just hoped it was okay. It looked like they were talking. And I'm like, this is not how mothers, at least the United States, uh, respond to kids, their kids getting in the cars with strangers. And so I thought that that was, I understand why he wanted it in the car, King did, to have that conversation be as private as it could be, but I didn't think it was in keeping with how mothers respond to their children in in instances like that. Um, Whereas in the movie, he's eating ice cream with Halloran and they're just having a conversation while the parents are away, which actually felt, again, like maybe um, for all of the film's deficits, I thought Kubrick made a couple choices that actually, when you think about it in relation to the book, King might have benefited from a couple of those himself. I'm actually going to push back on that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace it with something that's very similar in my mind. I think that's just a 1977 thing. Stranger Danger didn't really become a moral panic until after that. And I, I think there was a general level at which people were just a little bit more trusting. and. She's watching from the window and she feels a sense of alarm when she sees him get into the car, but then right away she realizes they're just talking and she's 
curious and a little bit concerned, but she doesn't go rushing out. She doesn't, um, you know, run for the authorities. And I think that's just a 1977 kind of a thing. You know, I remember growing up in the 80s, you know, say 10 years after that, my mother would usually walk me to the bus stop. And one morning something came up and she couldn't. And we were having work done on the house. There were contractors there. She didn't know these people from Adam. And one of these uh, construction workers ended up walking me to the bus stop. And it's really hard now to, I think, to imagine a parent trusting their young child to a, a stranger in a hard hat, you know? But what I noticed that I would put in the same category on this reread was that at the very end of the book, there's no hedge made, there's no hedge maze in the, the, uh, the novel and the denouement takes place in the hotel itself. And Jack is pursuing Danny upstairs somewhere in the maze of corridors. Wendy and Halloran are badly injured and they're downstairs. And they can hear Danny and Jack upstairs, but Wendy does not uh, go upstairs because she believes that Danny's been killed already. That, and I only picked up on it this time reading the book, but that struck me as a false note that I, I think Wendy, the mother, even if she'd you know, lost most of her limbs, she'd still be finding a way to drag herself up the stairs to find the corpse of her son rather than assuming that he was dead and sitting in shock with Halloran down below. That did strike me as a false note about motherhood. Um, I think the car scene played out the way it did because that interaction actually struck King as totally normal. I, I don't think he wanted them in the car. I think he wanted them in private, and he could just as easily have had them sit on the porch or something. You know, like I think the car thing just would have worked according to social standards in 1977 in a way that it probably wouldn't play out today. Fair enough, fair enough. But it's interesting that both of us we did seize on moments of motherhood as the thing that was striking a somewhat false note with us, which I think is interesting. It's also kind of interesting as you track King's own language patterns, but also like favorite words. So I don't know if you noticed the word petulant is definitely a favorite of his and it shows up throughout the novel and it's a fairly unusual word. You don't encounter the word petulant often in, uh, I don't usually, but he likes it. And uh, there are these interesting sort of flourishes and sort of, I don't know, I, you've read a lot more of his work, but I would guess that this stuff probably extends across his novels, not just favorite words, but even probably images of gosh knows what else that would kind of register in a king head like, yeah, this is a king novel, you know. It would be interesting if I, I remember... A few years ago, it was well back when you and I were working together. Actually, somebody ran a computer study on different authors to find out what words they used most frequently, uh, or at least what <laughs> what adjectives and things they used most frequently in an interesting way. I mean, I suppose you know most authors probably use the word "said" or the word "he" or something all the time. But I remember that they'd done it on Nabokov, and one of his favorite words was "mauve." the color mauve he apparently was and i've read you know a million pages of nabokov and i i believe it but it never stood out to me it would be interesting to have the results of that for stephen king and and would a word like petulant be on that list i bet it i have a feeling it would um so before we get into like a full-blown comparison between the book and the movie i just wanted to focus a little more on like 
get into the nitty gritty, man, of what you like about this novel. Like, why did you, why did it speak to you when you first read it? And in a way, how did it sort of um, invite you to become a real fan of King's work up until present day? And, and yeah, just speak. But really, actually, let's, let's focus on the book. Let's focus on The Shining. So what about The Shining did you find and do you find compelling? Well, let me just really briefly cite another King book. He wrote about 20 years ago, he published a book called On Writing, which is kind of legendary now. Uh, it's not that I've read many books on writing, but most of them are garbage. And his is extraordinary. It It's probably the greatest book on writing ever written. And I've, I've heard other, like, I've heard even people who, who are not Stephen King readers have read that book and have been blown away by it. And somewhere in On Writing, he talks about writing aggressively, not defensively. And normally I wouldn't like describing something as writing aggressively, but I know what he means when he says, do not write defensively. He means don't edge around things, don't apologize for what you're about to say, don't clear your throat at the beginning of the story. And the opening of The Shining was maybe the first time in my life that as a reader emerging from childhood into adulthood that I'd felt this sense of this utterly confident storytelling voice. Jack Torrance thought, officious little prick. And opening a book and knowing that I'm going to be told a good story. And so I think I knew The Shining going in was a, was a kind of haunted house story, which like, who doesn't love one of those? And then that voice um, just captured me immediately. But his insight into human character is extraordinary. And I know we just nitpicked at a couple things, but we both agreed those really were nitpicks. Um, and he just gets, even if he sometimes with dialogue, he goes a little bit over the top. He hits a few false notes here and there. Although, if you, if you spend time watching interviews with him, he himself is a kind of over the top character. Like, I think it's not that he sometimes makes his characters say things that aren't realistic. It's just that he sometimes makes them all a little bit over the top in the way that he himself is a little bit over the top. But even when his dialogue gets a little bit over the top or he conceives of a particularly outlandish plot device or something, there's just this fantastic understanding of human nature. I don't know that as a... Those years that I was, you know... Growing up reading King, I probably learned more about human character from Stephen King than from anything else that I read. And his portrayal of Jack Torrance as a loving father who is nonetheless a deeply wounded person who has a serious problem with addiction, even when he is not drinking. And his portrayal of Danny as a precocious child who's a daddy's boy for reasons that, you know, Nobody ever understands. Nobody ever understands why a, a child gravitates to one parent more than the other. And Wendy as a devoted but concerned woman who is carrying her own baggage and sometimes makes the wrong decisions based on that. And the, the way that these three people interact with one another and are bound by love and yet in the end, you know, are exposed to, to terrible evil. It's just everything about it rings true that's the thing like i i think i was responding to the truth in king before i was responding to anything else and 
all these years later as I've gained a far greater appreciation for his style. And also, I think I have, a, I have a pretty good ability to be honest about what when he does suck, because he can from time to time really suck. But even in the worst King books, which I, I do not recommend you read, but even in the worst ones, he's just pay, on a page-by-page basis, he's doing more emotional and stylistic heavy lifting than most novelists ever get to, even in the climax of their novels. Well, and I will say as a former like heavy duty fiction reader i love to read novels that's what really got me into reading in general you know certainly wasn't reading dry history books was reading novels reading fiction reading some poetry but mostly fiction i really 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 enjoyed watching him move us towards what i felt to be deep insights into human nature but also, if you want to put it this way, thesis statements of the book. Um, I think he has a few thesis statements. And um, he was intent on being explicit about them, not in like a didactic way, but in a, okay, this is the aha moment. These are the aha moments that we've been building towards. And I think he delivers on those aha moments. I have my own ideas about what they are. I'd be curious to know what what you think they are, or if you think that's in here at all. Yeah, I want to actually, you cited a passage to me ahead of time that I'm going to ask you to read. I I would like to read a passage that I highlighted ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so Danny has a imaginary friend who may or may not be an imaginary friend called Tony, who sometimes appears to him and gives him advice or warnings. And, and Tony tells him that, his mother is going to be hurt and maybe killed. And so Danny cries out the word no. And then I, I'm going to quote, he cried it out in a distant grief, a terror that seemed damped by these dreamy, dreary surroundings. Nonetheless, death images came to him. Dead frog plastered to the turnpike like a grisly stamp. Daddy's broken watch lying on top of a box of junk to be thrown out. Gravestones with a dead person under every one. Dead Jay by the telephone pole. The cold junk mommy scraped off the plates and down the dark maw of the garbage disposal. Yet he could not equate these simple symbols with the shifting, complex reality of his mother. She satisfied his childish definition of eternity. She had been when he was not. She would continue to be when he was not again. He could accept the possibility of his own death. He had dealt with that since the encounter in room 217, but not hers, not daddy's, not ever. That sentence, I mean, the the images that he associates with death are themselves fascinating, the, the cold junk going down the garbage disposal. But then that that description of how his mother satisfied his childish definition of eternity, she had been when he was not, she would continue to be when he was not again. That is a primal human truth about child childhood and and maybe even adulthood. If you, you know, if you're if you're alive in adulthood and you haven't lost a parent yet. And it's such a simple truth that is so seldomly articulated and so seldomly articulated that clearly when it's just one of these perfect flashes of perfectly described insight into the human condition. You know, say I've read this book five, six times, 
every time I sure I would have read that and internalized because I was being carried along by the story, carried along by the writing, I would have felt the truth of that passage and just moved on. And this time I, I skidded to a stop in front of it. And I was like, I want to single this out this time because this is so well done. That's a good, yeah, I remember that that moment in the book and it is very well written and, and does speak to something, uh, what do you want to call it, universally true on some level about how child children relate to their parents and their mortality or their sense of their immortality. Yeah, and I think actually the passage that you singled out was kind of along the same lines, wasn't it? I came at it from a slightly different angle. So I'll read my favorite, what I would consider to be pretty much the center of the Tsuchiro pop. So it goes like this. Danny stood without moving. There was no place he could run where the overlook was not. He recognized it suddenly, fully, painlessly. For the first time in his life, he had an adult thought, an adult feeling, the essence of his experience in this bad place, a sorrowful distillation. Mommy and daddy can't help me, and I'm alone. And I went, fuck. Yeah. So this is, if it isn't uh, clear, in the final act, really in the final pages of the book, when Jack Torrance is fully possessed, running around with a croquet mallet. In the movie, he has an axe. In the book, he has a mallet. I'm sorry. Get your pretentious lawn games right, Robert. It's a roke mallet. No, I'm sorry. Roke. You're right. I think it was probably like an unconscious uh, desire not to mispronounce roke. So yes, a roke mallet. What's interesting is you go back to his original interaction with Halloran, who's the only other character in the book who can shine. Um, and he can't shine as powerfully as Danny can, but he has enough shine to be able to play ball with him, you know? And Halloran says at the beginning, you know, you're going to see some shit. This, the house, the hotel itself shines. Sometimes hotel, sometimes inanimate objects can have a kind of shine depending on what happens in and around them. And so the Overlook Hotel is also a kind of, uh, uh, character personified that's capable of shining. And, but he says, and I thought that this was interesting, he basically says, if you remember that it's essentially pictures in a picture book, it can't hurt you, and it's not real, and it's substanceless. And when he goes into room 217, which is an important moment in the book, he lets his fear take him over. And as a result, he actually gets injured. So you have this uh, feeling like, oh, shit, these ghosts can actually hurt you. They can kill you. But then you get to this flash forward to the final moments of the book when he has to face down his father, who's, you know, possessed. And he's encountering all these other sort of demonic figures as he's in the hall. And he's able finally to say, you're really not real. Like, basically, fuck off. Like, you don't exist. And they vanish. And so he gets to his father, his father's about to drop a fucking mallet on his face. And he says, you're not my dad. You're the hotel that's possessed my dad. Get the fuck out of here. And the dad comes back momentarily and drops the mallet and is, has enough sense to say run. But I bring all this up to say, and I go with doing all that background to, to basically get at why I think that line, mommy and daddy can't help me and I'm alone is so central to this. He comes to that realization in the midst of this uh, agonized, nightmarish, you know, uh, chase scene. 
it's a moment that I, again, kind of what you said about the truth of the child recognizing the mortality of his mother for the first time. She's not going to live forever. She is a mere mortal. Is a similar adult realization to this, which is I'm going to have things that scare the fuck out of me beyond this hotel as a human being, as we do, right? We are confronted with all kinds of things that scare us. And some of that stuff is a result of unworked uh, through traumas from our childhoods. And I'm going to have a point, and this is one of the first, where I can't lean on either of them. I can only lean on myself. And I thought it was just a staggering and such an important insight about, in my mind, what it really does mean to be an adult. And so further, this is where I think King really pulls it off. And I'll, I'll stop so I don't go on a monologue, Brendan. But I think you kind of have his father, Jack, Danny's father with all of this unprocessed trauma from his father, who was an alcoholic that beat him and his, and his siblings and his mother. And he never got over the fear of that. He never faced down that fear. And so he avoided it through his alcoholism. His mother, Danny's mother, never quite faced down the rejection and the fear that was uh, connected to that from her mother, who was a fairly calloused character from how she's rendered in the book. So Danny's being raised by two purported adults, but in, upon closer inspection are adults in children's bodies. And Danny, upon closer inspection, is an adult in a child's body. And this is where you go, wow, there's nothing about this that's fair. It's not fair that Danny has to shoulder the burdens of his parents' emotional immaturity and inability to face their own fears. He not only has to face his own fears, he now has to face their fears for them on some level. And I thought, you know, you end the book with Halloran at the lake saying, you just have to fucking get on, man. Sometimes you got to go in a closet and cry, but get over it and keep, you know, having a capacity to love people, be in love, have love for the world and keep going, keep moving. And I'm going, that's exactly right. And so if I were to condense this all into a single koan, right, or a single aphorism it would be. Nothing about this is fair, and in spite of its patent unfairness, you have to carry on anyway. And that's what Danny learned and what Jack never did, his father. So I'm like, fuck, this is unbelievable. I am very much, I do feel there's a deep truth in that. That is not airport, you know, philosophizing. That's serious uh, insight in my mind. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put, man. The The idea that Jack and Wendy are children in adults' bodies, and Danny is an adult in a child's body, and that he has to deal with his own fears, but he also has to deal with their fears. And then I nothing that, about that's fair, but he yeah, does it anyway. Exactly. Do you mind if I just spoil a little bit of Dr. Sleep? Which is Yeah, the, yeah. Do it. So if you're going to read more King, I would not recommend starting with Dr. Sleep. It's it's okay. It's not a terrible book, but it's not. it doesn't quite come up to the... the stature of the shining but in doctor sleep when we meet danny again as an adult he is an alcoholic and a drug addict and it's hard because of course he's victorious in a sense at the end of the shining and the character of the little kid as played extraordinarily well by danny lloyd in the movie has become this iconic sort of avatar of like 
mature innocence or something. And so we want the best for that kid. And But if you think about it, of course he grew up to be an addict after not just growing up watching his father's addiction, but then the trauma that he went through of his father trying to murder him and then the additional trauma of having the shine, which allows him to hear other people's thoughts, whether he wants to or not. Of course that kid turned into an addict. Of course he did. So that's that's the only thing about Dr. Sleep that I want to say is just that in King's imagination, we do know a little bit about where Danny went after the end of this book, and it it is it's dark places because how could it not be? Yeah, um, well, that's I'm interested now in actually reading it, even if it's not as good as The Shining, just to see where he takes all that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to maybe hammer home the the points that you made earlier, and I think what what brought you to King and has sustained your loyalty to him is like he really is able to. I guess to use a cliche, get inside the heads of his characters and get at aspects of the human experience that I think we all have to go through, even if it's not precisely in the ways that his characters go through them. There's so much truth to them, to those struggles and how they're how they're explored, made sense of the psychology, right, of why we do what we do. Yeah, it's uh, impressive. So I am, uh, I don't think I was surprised. I was actually ready to like it um, and like him because of your uh, championing of his books and others that I respect that like his work. But I was definitely happy that it was consistent with the high praise that I'd heard from you. And he, he mentions, I think it's actually in on writing, but maybe in other places as well. He mentions in retrospect, he was a raging drunk and drug abuser at the time that he wrote this. And the fact that he was actually, to a certain extent, writing about himself completely escaped him at the moment. But on some level, I think he was, I think he was exploring his own nightmares as a father. What if the addiction that I refuse to acknowledge to myself that I have became so bad that I hurt my children? He was he was exploring the depths of his own psyche without realizing that he was doing it. But in the course of doing that, he was also creating the characters of Wendy and, and Danny and other incidental characters in the novel who are completely realized human beings with wildly different perspectives from each other. And the fact that he was able to commit to that kind of empathy while at the same time not realizing that he's actually exploring himself too is fascinating. Like what what kind of dark magic really goes on in the cellars of the human soul during the creative process, you know? And I know that we're not talking about room 237 right now, but I actually feel just as a plug for that future episode, let's not discuss it at length at all right now, just as a plug. There's this assumption that these folks made with Kubrick's film that Kubrick, I mean, clearly Kubrick was in control of a lot and he had a sort of obsessive attention to detail that I think we've all come to love him for. That's part of what makes his movies so great is like, holy shit, he really does care about that thing in the corner of the frame. That still doesn't mean he fully understands his own creations the same way King doesn't understand his own, the same way no one does. And so... 
so much of these conspiracy theories depend upon this notion of an artist that is fully conscious of every single move they're making. And what you just spoke to, which I think is much truer to reality, is we can actually be so fucking blind, even when we're making a masterpiece, that King can come out and say, holy crap, years later, I realize this is me working through my addiction problems, you know, from the man himself. I mean, that to me is almost a QED against uh, any of these totally bizarro conspiracy theorist claims that that depend upon the sort of omni- total omniscience of the creators of these products, the media they make. Anyway, we don't need to go there by that. That's an important detail. No, that's actually a perfect segue into talking about what we think of the film, uh, which unlike the book, the film is a, a revisit for both of us. Stephen King famously hated Kubrick's movie. I his most I think specific criticism at the time was Kubrick had turned the character of Wendy into a quote unquote shrieking dish rag, and he thought that it was a misogynistic movie. And in the years since, as the movie has become more iconic, there's been more and more light shed on the fact that Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall terribly on the set of that film and her performance is often justifiably lauded she she gives a remarkable portrayal of a woman who is in the extreme of terror and she deserves all the credit for that but she was also frazzled um you know to the the limits of her sanity by the way that kubrick was treating her and i was struck watching the movie this time at how unsexualized she is in the movie and it's you know their sexual relationship jack and wendy it's not a focus of the book but it's definitely a part of it you know he king has them in bed after they've they've had sex and jack is very flirtatious with wendy a lot of the time you know you know they laugh a lot about making sexual references in front of danny that he doesn't understand and Jack is always, you know, admiring her legs and and putting his hand on her leg when they're when they're sitting near each other and things like that. You know, when Jack isn't drinking, they have a really good, healthy sexual relationship. And when we first meet Wendy, well, I guess we first meet her in the car, but when we first really spend time with her in the film, it's when she's back in in the, the apartment in Boulder and she's wearing this kind of even by 1980 standards kind of strikingly dowdy outfit and she is dressed that way throughout the majority of the film. And I, I don't mean to imply that she should have been held to some artificial, shallow standard of feminine sexuality, but I do think those are the expectations with that that Kubrick was working in, and he did make a deliberate choice to desexualize her. And, you know, the idea that Jack Torrance and Jack Nicholson, as played by Jack Nicholson and Wendy Torrance, as played by Shelley Duvall in the universe of the film, ever could have been sexually attracted to one another seems faintly ridiculous. So I, I, I kind of squarely came down on the side of the fact that Kubrick was a misogynist and he was incapable of making a portrayal of Wendy that was not misogynist and that it's one of many things that, that don't work in the movie at all. And King saw it right away in 1980 when that thing came out. And People forget, because there have been a lot of shitty Stephen King adaptations in the last 30, 40 years. People forget his first novel, Carrie, was adapted by Brian De Palma, 
he had a history early on with really respected directors picking up his stuff. And so when Kubrick came along and picked up a Stephen King adaptation, I think King's expectation would have been, this is going to be incredible. And so for King right at the time to call it out for being sexist, misogynist, I think is spot on. And so I guess let's use that as an entry point into into what we think of the film. Like all these, you know, you said you've seen it 10 or 11 times now. Like, how does that sit with you? Well, I want to back up and also say that I was at a bookstore in Albuquerque over the uh, sometime earlier in the week and a lovely bookstore, Page One Books. If anyone ever wants to go to an incredible used and new bookstore, there's a plug for page one. I wound up with a box of books that I should not have bought. But anyway, as I'm at the checkout counter and I was listening to the banter of the employees, I'm a um, unrepentant bibliophile, but also an aspiring kind of bookseller. At least that's how I envision my my years of retirement and, and, and gradual decrepitude. Um, but it's interesting to listen to employees in these bookstores because you learn a lot, A, about whether they themselves are book people, which you hope that they are, but also um, if they're having a good time, which uh, as indicated, at least by the banter I was overhearing, they're having a pretty good time, which again is hats off to that bookstore. You know, it's good. It's good when the employees are A, into what they're doing and also feeling good in the environment. But I bring this up just to say I'm checking out. I'd already listened to some of the banter, so I felt a little bit bolder in in speaking to something. But the the man at the register, the employee, the male employee, wear, was wearing a shirt. The shirt was a door with the numbers two one seven on it. So I knew immediately this was a Stephen King head. So I said, "What do you think of the book? And what did you think of the movie?" And he and what did you think of what Stephen King thought of the movie? And he said, well, the quote that always I'm reminded of that King made regarding the film was he thought it was like a very beautiful Porsche. But upon closer inspection, you realize it doesn't have an engine. I thought that was hilarious. Um, But then he said, from what he's read, that King has warmed to the film over time, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if you knew that, but apparently he has rewatched it since and felt a little better about it. Um, so I thought that was interesting and just a, a random sort of serendipitous uh, encounter with a stranger that had something to say about this. But so in terms of the misogyny, um, you know, the more that I thought of what I felt or was failing to feel in The Shining uh, might in fact cover the entirety of Kubrick's filmic corpus. So let me get at what I think struck me. And I think it does loop into your your own critiques, even if I'm not sure I'm ready to say categorically that Kubrick was a misogynist, but I am definitely comfortable, I think, saying at this point, he doesn't do very well with emotions in general. Um, I don't feel I didn't really feel anything in this movie other than you sort of the requisite and expected psychological sort of uh, discomfort and anxiety. He did a good job, as you pointed out, with the music, with the camera angles, with the with Nicholson's performance. Uh, It's atmospherically very unsettling, but there's no character development per se. I mean, Jack Nicholson kind of starts crazy. You can tell in the car, this guy's fucked up. 
and he just continues to get more fucked up, but you get none of the sort of complexity and nuance of the inner lives of the characters as King renders it in the book. And so granted, I know I'm watching a movie and I know that movies are different from books and filmmakers have to make choices to adhere to the form that they are operating in. You can't uh, fit 600 pages of book into a two hour film. You just can't, you have to make choices. So um, some of the choices I respected, as I mentioned with the pantry scene, I even felt like the ice cream scene with Halloran was an interesting choice, actually maybe even better than what King had chosen in his own book. But in terms of like just, yeah, like character development, feeling um, sort of connected to any of these people, um, even Danny, even Wendy, who are the victims in this, I'm not sure he got me there. I'm not sure he did very much work at all in that department. And further, the more I started to go like, okay, wait a second, 2001 Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, Clockwork Orange, uh, which, you know, we could keep eyes wide shut for sure. I'm like, none of these movies ever make me feel anything, really. They make me think. He's often attributed with being cerebral, which is probably right. It is. They are cerebral and intellectually stimulating films. But in some ways, yeah, my respect for The Shining was diminished and maybe more damningly, my respect for Kubrick as a filmmaker was diminished when I started to ask myself, how important is it that when I'm watching a movie, that that movie does really uh, does get at my feelings and makes me feel invested in the characters and moves me in some kind of deeply human way? I feel like there's, I don't know. I mean, with all due respect to this great filmmaker, there's a kind of um, coldness to his films. And I might even go farther and say there's a little bit of, um, what's the word? They're like um, emotionally uh, sterile. There's a sterile quality to them. And I find that as much as I respect, as you put it, the technical achievements and Kubrick's incredible eye, aesthetic sensibility, it's like a, it kind of is like a beautiful car, but in this instance, it's a beautiful character that upon closer inspection has nothing inside them and nothing that could make me connect to them on a human level. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt actually that might be the case across his entire body of work. And that's a heavy critique, but I think I'm comfortable with it. I think that's correct. I don't think I've ever felt moved, emotionally moved. I've been frightened. I've been anxious. I've been cerebrally stimulated, but not moved by Kubrick's movies. How does that land with you? Yeah, I I agree with it. it is, this is not going to be an episode where you and I are, are butting heads, I think, about our takes, because I agree with that completely. I've seen, I haven't seen everything. I've not seen Eyes Wide Shut, um, and some things I have not seen in a while, but I, I've seen most Kubrick, and most of it I've seen multiple times. And I will still, I will take 2001 A Space Odyssey and Dr. Strangelove and put those in my private canon, I think, but... I think both of those, for different reasons, were perfectly suited to his gifts as a filmmaker and not subject to suffering from his weaknesses as a filmmaker. This sh and, and look, there is art where you, maybe all art, like you have to be willing to open yourself up to the spell. You know, you go to an art gallery, maybe you're going to go in in a bad mood not ready to be receptive to things. And then you'll see a painting that'll just take you aback and it'll sort of break through. And then 
you will find yourself under its spell. But that's not really ideal for anything. Like, I think I've gotten pretty good over the years. At, like, if I'm opening a novel by a writer I'm not familiar with, I'm willing to be seduced. I'm putting myself out there to be seduced into the story. And if I close the book and I say, this isn't doing it for me, and or this is crap, I've already put the effort into it. And so I know, I'm willing to concede, like, there are parts of The Shining where you have to be willing to put yourself under its spell. I just didn't find myself willing to do that this time, and I didn't find that the movie was doing any work to draw me in. And there are things in it, like for every scene that remains iconic for me, Danny throwing the darts in the game room and then turning around and seeing the little girls, for instance. There's another scene that just makes me laugh, like when Wendy stumbles into the dining room and it's full of cobwebs and skeletons. So cheesy, so cheesy. Yeah, it's completely cheesy, and it's not self-consciously cheesy. It's just dumb. Or the blood spilling out of the elevator, or Danny Lloyd, you know, the little kid, does such a fantastic job, but the moments when he's like in the trance because he's having the visions... You know, and he's like shaking and drooling and his eyes are wide. And then we see Halloran in his bed in Miami doing the same thing when he's getting the the visions of the hotel where the, the camera just pans in on Scatman Carruthers with his eyes really wide and his mouth open. And it's just kind of laughable. Like it's it's just silly. And once that kind of broke the spell for me in a way where I don't know that I'll ever be able to fall really under the spell of the movie ever again. And I think King's criticism is, is apt. And I, I do think like King also famously has really bad takes on movies. Like he's a writer and he is not a filmmaker and he's not really wired to be a film critic. Um, His movie tastes were shaped by like the hammer horror movies or the universal horror movies of like the 1950s. Which is fine, and definitely you rewatch The Shining if you hated it the first time. You can come to appreciate some of the technical choices Kubrick makes, or some of the performances in the film. The deftness, which, which, with which, I mean, God, Danny sitting on the carpet playing with the trucks, and then the ball rolls down the hallway, and then he looks up, and there's nothing there. Yeah, that'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. How fantastically well done is that? But as a whole, you're right. There's no character development. And I also don't have any idea what it's about. Like, we could talk at much greater length than we did about what The Shining, the novel, is about. From failing parents and children in the bodies of adults to addiction to trauma being passed from generation to generation to maybe even, you know, because in the novel, you get into the whole history of the Overlook. And there's never, King is way too smart to make any attempt to understand, to explain why the hotel is the way that it is like is it because horace derwent was the one who opened it is it something about him or is it the location like he never gets into any of that king has or kubrick rather has a stupid throwaway and arguably racist line where Stuart allman explains that the hotel was supposedly built on an indian burial ground oh god here we go again fucking indian burial ground shit but beyond that like i don't i don't know what the movie is about because there is no character development, and Jack Nicholson is clearly batshit unhinged from the opening frame of the movie. And so it's an interesting technical exercise in sustaining dread or unsettledness for 90 minutes. But I, I don't think it's really a good movie. And I think if you do watch Room 237, it's interesting how many of those people recount their first time seeing the movie in the theater, 
how they were fans of the book and the movie left them deeply disappointed. I think there's something. And they had to start yeah. reading the labels on the cereal boxes in the pantry in the film to make the film greater than the book. And 30 years later, here they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And part, part of that is an attempt, I think, to find substance in the movie. Because well, yeah, yeah, we went there. We went there to be a there, there behind all of the the glossy sophistication and the technical chops, and I don't think there is. So I will say, like now that I read the book, and as you put it, so closely on the heels of watching the film, what I thought was also interesting were these little details that I never caught, or if I saw them, I didn't tie them to the book, of course, because I hadn't read them. But now having watched the film. I'm like, okay, this is Kubrick kind of being cute. Or maybe it's Kubrick dropping balls and like really not being able to tie it together, even in a halfway reasonable way, keeping in mind he's making a film and not a book. So let me give you a couple examples. One is, as Jack is writing in the film, you see a scrapbook opened on the desk. And I hadn't read the book uh, up until last week, but now that I've read it, I know that Jack in the book comes across a scrapbook in the basement in the boiler room and the book plays a central role in him sort of, you know, projecting or like using it as his alcohol crutch, like the same way that he gets excited and triggered by alcoholism. He's now feeding this obsessional fascination with learning about Overlook through this scrapbook. And you see the scrapbook on the table in the movie. But if you hadn't read the book, you would just see it as another random thing, an object on the desk that has no bearing on the movie, which it doesn't actually. That's the thing. It's like, okay, here's a kind of a real book tie-in, but he doesn't, Kubrick never went anywhere with it. So all you get is maybe at best a wink to the readers who know why that scrapbook's there. But here's another example. At the end of the film, it zooms in on a photo of a 4th of July event in 1921 at the Overlook. And you see that Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, is in the photo at the front. And as a viewer, you're going, what the fuck does that mean? And I actually did. I had two friends come over last night to support me as I watched this because I'm a little more sensitive to horror films than you are at this point. But I asked them, like, what do you make of that? because I'd read the book. So I had my view on what that is. That was I, what I think Kubrick was doing. But one of the friends, one of my friends said this, uh, maybe it's like the hotel has claimed him. And now he's in that photo in this weird way that he can sort of, he can um, conceivably in the logic of the film and the logic in quotes of the overlook craziness um, be that sort of permanent caretaker that was always there, as Grady said in the bathroom, which is used in the book too. That's right. I mean, that is about as close as you're going to get to what King was going after in his own book. Um, but if you haven't read the book, uh, my other friend didn't get close to that. He was just speculating. I think most viewers are sort of scratching their heads going, I don't know, this is just Kubrick being eccentric and making you wonder what the fuck is going on here. And you know, I think again, that was sort of his, I, I almost am like, I feel like I'm like, I'm like defacing a saint or something, a patron saint when I level these kinds of critiques against Kubrick, but I'm going to do it. I don't think he earned it in a certain way. Like he, it, it adds to, as you put it, the atmosphere, you have the creepy music, 
Jack Nicholson's showcase performance. In some ways, the whole film is sort of just letting Jack Nicholson be crazy to me is what the movie winds up being. And he does a good job of it. Although, again, no uh, disrespect to Jack. Uh, I wonder how hard it was for him to do that. I actually think it was probably fairly easy. It's almost like just just do you like be Jack, but like while drunk or like if you did a line of Coke and then do Jack Nicholson. And he's like, no problem, as they're both probably beating up on Shelley Duvall, you know, uh, verbally. Um, but so I'm just sort of like as the reader of the book, I now understand why Kubrick ended with that photo. But as a viewer of the film, had I not read the book, I wouldn't know what to do with it. And I think you are kind of left with a puzzle that's yet to be completed. Kubrick passes it off as more psychological, atmospheric, you know, masterful artistry. And I think we're both sitting here going, it's kind of sloppy. It's kind of loose. I don't know. It just doesn't quite, I don't know, didn't. So those are two examples, the the scrapbook on the desk and the photo in the end where it's like, you read the book, you have a fuller sense of why that's there. If you haven't, you probably miss them both. Um, certainly the scrapbook and the photo is just enigmatic at best. Yeah, Kubrick started out as a photographer and the number of iconic images in The Shining is, it you know, in the dozens probably. And, you know, it was famously innovative for using the steady cam to get the big wheel shots of, of Danny going down the hallway. I think his greatest gift was in some sense as a photographer in, in conceiving of how to frame Scatman Crothers' face or how to frame Jack sitting at the typewriter or how to create the sense of disorientation that comes from the fact that the interior geography of the Overlook doesn't really make any sense. But when it comes to, as you said, the human elements that it takes to tell a human story he falls short. And I think you will see that in many of his other films. You know, th there's a one of the many stories that gets told about the making of this is that Kubrick wanted to make a horror movie. And so he had somebody send him a bunch of recent horror novels. And I, I always picture him sitting on the floor when I picture this scene, but I doubt it played out quite that way. But I imagine him sitting on the floor surrounded by paperbacks and just opening one and reading the first three pages and throwing it over his shoulder and saying, not that one. And then just going through that process with a dozen novels. And then when he got to The Shining, he said, this is it. This is what I'm going to film. And it would be easy to say, well, that's probably because he read a bunch of bad books and then he finally got to a good book. But it's become commonplace to point out that a lot of what King does that makes him so great is unfilmable because it's so internal. I, I've heard it described as like um, extreme internal intimacy or something like that. Like you're so deep in Wendy's and Jack's and Danny's and Halloran's thoughts and feelings. You can't film that shit. You have to come up with other techniques in order to film it. And so in a way, he picked... As the horror novel that he wanted to adapt, he picked one of the most unfilmable ones. I, I don't know if there is a good... I mean, I know King himself oversaw a made-for-TV version of The Shining, which I hear is not very good. I'm not surprised it's not very good. It was made for TV. I don't know if there is a, a good version of this movie, but it's tempting to imagine, you know... Kubrick's style and the, and the music and everything with Jack and Wendy as well-rounded human characters like they are in the film. I don't, I don't know. 
Well, and yeah, I'd but... also say just like as a bit of trivia with Kubrick and how he worked, he apparently had a chess game going at all times on all of his sets, and he was constantly playing chess. And I think there's something interesting there because um, it's it's a highly strategic game. And I think on some level, he makes movies like he plays chess. And it reminds me of Hitchcock to some degree where you're like, wow, these are so technically, even in a cerebral level, so masterful, so complex, so well navigated, masterfully pulled off. And yet, I don't watch a Hitchcock film to feel things. That might actually be part of why I've never been that into Hitchcock. But I guess I'm also revealing my hand that I want to feel things when I watch a movie um, beyond just like mental, you know, like anticipation or a kind of cerebral anxiety or sort of a thriller sort of, you know, uh, emotion of sorts, if you call that an emotion. But I guess what I want to say is, and again, like this is me editorializing about Kubrick, the artist, and I hope I'm not being unfair, but it takes vulnerability to um, feel things yourself. And it takes vulnerability to explore feelings as an artist in the art that you make. And I don't think he was into vulnerability. I think he was into control. So I think what's funny, actually, is that the same way that King was like, oh, I made a movie. I made, I wrote a book, excuse me. And I realized now, years later, I'm, I was grappling with my alcoholism. I could almost see Kubrick coming back from the grave and going, oh, I made a movie that was about a guy, yada, yada, yada. But really, it was about my you know, need to control everything. And in doing so, squeezing all feeling and, and potential character development out of, my, out of my work of art. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And it, there's something about, when you watch a movie that's about a bad person, where the bad person is foregrounded, or when you read a book, you know, reading Lolita, where the main character's a, a child rapist, right? And in some ways, I think that is sometimes maybe the pinnacle of art is to portray a bad person in a way that draws you in so that you you despise the person, but you want to keep spending time with them at the same time. Maybe the ultimate trick that a storyteller can pull off. And it's very easy, well, not very easy necessarily, but it's relatively easy if you're a savvy reader or or audience member to understand that you're being shown behavior that the artist does not endorse. He wants you to see this behavior, he wants you to confront it, but he's not endorsing it just because he's spending a lot of time with the character who's behaving that way. When you watch The Shining and you see Jack Nicholson verbally abusing Shelley Duvall, you know, when, when she comes in and says, radio says it's going to snow tomorrow, and he gives her a look of infinitely restrained, supreme patience and says, what do you want me to do about it, right? And it, then it just escalates from there and there and there, right? I feel like I'm never sure whether a part of Kubrick isn't really on the sidelines rooting Jack on. Like, if on some level he actually condones this behavior and he's making a movie about it because he condones it. And that, to me, suggests that there's something... There's some heart, some fundamental heart that's just missing in his work. That there's this, this great, at best, there's a coldness at the heart of it. And at worst, there's something much scarier than coldness. 
I think it's an interesting thing to speculate about. And I'd also say, you know, one thing I didn't mention, I don't know if you felt this while watching, you use the word silly to uh, describe the uh, skeletons and cobwebs scene when, when Shelley Duvall, when Wendy is running through the halls. I agree. One word we haven't used is comedic. And I actually think as weird as it sounds, the more I watched Nicholson's character, Jack, do what he did, I was like, uh, this is right on the line, actually. I had a few times where I actually laughed um, because it was so over the top. And I know we're watching someone purportedly losing their mind and thinking about killing their family. But the way that Nicholson does it, you're just like, I can't help but feel like there's actually a comedic uh, strain that's sort of running through this whole thing on some level. It's a bizarre thing to say, but it's on the face of it's a horror film, but on some level it's a comedy in Kubrick's hands. Well, so do you think then, because maybe we're, maybe we're missing something. I mean, if you watch Dr. Strangelove, which I would argue is, is a masterpiece it's very, very obvious that it's satirical and that Kubrick has figured out how to get his actors to play serious in a comedic way, right? We and all the you know, the fantastic shots we get of like General Buck Turgenson's face and everything, and how to get uh, George C. Scott to give a comedic performance simply by being as earnest as he can. I don't think that's happening in The Shining. In other words, you don't. Th- do you think that Kubrick is trying to sometimes be funny and we're just missing it? No, I actually just think like Nicholson really does go full loco and just leans into it in a way that is delicious. And, you know, in spite of, I agree with you, like obviously it's a deeply disturbed but misogynistic character. The scene when uh, she discovers what he's writing and they have that exchange on the staircase, his whole shtick there is hilarious if you really look at it from a certain you know, point of view. And the performance is incredible. He, he does a great job the whole way through. Um, but you know, just to, I feel like I didn't, I dodged your, your misogyny question to some degree, so let me fold that in now. Um, and I will cop to this. Like, I'm like, maybe this is my own latent sexism coming out. But like, I was reading the character of Wendy as the viewer as actually kind of annoying. You know, like I was being an, I was feeling annoyed by her, certainly not to the degree that her husband in the film was Jack Torrance. And I, I don't condone any of that behavior, but I do feel like she actually was I don't know what the word is, but Kubrick maybe did position her in such a way that the audience members would find her a little annoying, which would gain some sympathy in the Jack Torrance department and sort of make this all somehow a little more workable in the mind of the viewer. But Wendy's not annoying in the book. I do find her annoying as a character in the film. Um, so again, maybe that's my own latent sexism. Maybe that was Kubrick like wanting on some level to uh, present her that way, you know? Yeah. And is he, it's a, it's an interesting question because I've struggled with the same thing because I also find her annoying in the movie. She's simpering. She says vapid things sometimes, and she says things that are not vapid in a way that is 
seems designed to be off-putting. And I have asked myself if I am if there's some inherent misogyny that I have that is making me find her annoying, or if it's what I'm annoyed by is the fact that she isn't given any depth in the book when they're doing the walkthrough when Almond is giving them the tour. Jack and Wendy are constantly exchanging glances because they're judging Almond because they think he's pompous and pretentious and they both think it and they're making eye contact when he's not looking at them and in the movie Almond is a different sort of character but he's giving them the tour and he's talking about all the famous people who have stayed there and Wendy says royalty which is just so like nothing at all like Wendy in the book you know would never ever react that way and from the beginning you're like oh look at this like shallow celebrity obsessed woman so i i don't know thinking that she's annoying is either it's either being sexist yourself or it's being annoyed at kubrick's sexist portrayal of her and it i guess it does goes to go to show how hard it is to disentangle i think our, it could cut, biases. Yeah. yeah yeah i think it could cut both ways but i do actually feel feel confident that kubrick had had um what do you want to call it i don't know positioned the character of wendy uh, in just such a way that it would, they would find the audience would find her slightly annoying. I do think that's there, um, and so yeah. I, and I actually would like to learn a little bit more about not for like Schadenfreude reasons, but just to get a fuller view of like just what Shelley Duvall was subjected to uh, while filming. I've read a little bit. It did say like. I mean, he's infamous for doing literally over a hundred takes of seemingly even arbitrary scenes. Um, in Eyes Wide Shut, there's a pool hall scene early in the film that's, you know, I mean, every, I guess, scene is consequential, but it's inconsequential compared to more important moments. Apparently they spent two, if you imagine this man, two fucking weeks doing that scene over and over and over again. And uh, that uh, baseball bat scene apparently was done 127 times. But only because of her. He didn't subject Nicholson to anywhere near the same level of repeat takes. And like, there's actual research exists on that. Like, There is a point of diminishing returns with this shit. Like, take three might be better than take one. And take eight might be the best take. But there's a point at which you're not, it's not helping anymore to reshoot. You're just not, you can do it 99 times, but you're not going to get better each time. And that is a control thing. But ultimately, it's, you know, the question of whether Kubrick was abusive in making the movie is a separate question from whether the, the result is good. And I think I've surprised myself, although, you know, I rewatched Full Metal Jacket a while back and I thought, Jesus, this is really not a very good movie. I've I mean, never even had that, it. even that, the climax emotional moment for me of that, there's two, of course. There's the scene when uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's character kills himself. That's very rough and important. Um, but also the scene when the female sniper has to get killed at the end and the other sort of main protagonist is bearing witness to this atrocity. And even in those moments, I'm just sort of like somehow even in what should be this emotional dagger to the heart, I don't feel anything other than sort of an unsettledness. Like somehow like 
clockwork orange unsettledness shines through rather than some deep sort of insight into the human, you know, soul, um, which I do think I'm looking for. I think Lynch, for instance, as fucked up as Lynch is, um, can do that at times. There's times when he's also, I think, could be could be charged with a certain uh, sterileness in terms of feeling. But um, there's certainly some moments in Lynch where you're like, okay, he gets something and he's doing it well and I'm connecting with it and, and I'm on a feeling level, not just cerebral. Somehow Kubrick never gets there, even in the most intimate, seemingly intimate moments of his films. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this has sort of made me realize that I'm really not a Stanley Kubrick fan anymore. And I, I, I maybe at one point in my life I was, or maybe it was just that at one point in my life I wanted to be. And yeah. once I let go of wanting to be, I realized I wasn't. Well, and this is with all due respect to Andre Tarkovsky, who again, like there are moments in his movies that I deeply respect, but I am almost immediately suspicious of someone who's like, that's my favorite filmmaker because they're so fucking hard. And not just like, just because they're hard doesn't mean they can't be your favorite filmmaker, but like they're more than just hard. This is like, you have to be a little bit masochistic to enter into a Tarkovsky film even though it might uh, have a real payoff on multiple levels. Like, I just don't trust someone who's like, this is my favorite filmmaker. I'm like, give me a fucking break, man. No, it's not. You you appreciate things about Tarkovsky, but if you say, this is your, you settle down to Tarkovsky more than any other filmmaker, I'm going to call bullshit. I just have to call bullshit. Next week on Candy Jail, we are releasing an emergency Tarkovsky episode. We're going to start with Stalker and then go to Solaris and then just kind of um, keep it going after that. So join us if you want to. I think we'll start around six in the morning. We're going to live stream this. And, I'm going to uh, say we got to live stream it. We're going to be giving away um, all kinds of great goodies. Like, um, first off, our souls. We're going to offer those um, gratis. Keeps the data on your favorite brand.